Greetings, this is Cody Cook, and you're listening to Cantus Firmus. A quick shout-out to Patreon supporters Kelly Smith and Peter Mangle. What follows is a reading from a chapter in my book, Post-Enlightened, Reflections on 200 Years of Anti-Christian Writing from Thomas Paine to Richard Dawkins. Uh, the book can be purchased on paperback or for Kindle at Amazon.com. And for a short time, you can get it on Kindle for free. Uh, that's uh, from uh, Sunday, June 17th to Thursday, June 21st. And if you're listening to this in a different year, I'm referring to 2018. So uh, for this reading, I, I was going to um, read an excerpt uh, it's, uh, from Chapter 2 about uh, Friedrich Nietzsche's uh, book, The Antichrist. And my wife, Raven, is actually going to be uh, helping me out. She's going to be actually reading the citations from Nietzsche. And basically, the, the idea behind this book, uh, Post-Enlightened, is that it examines uh, the trajectory of anti-Christian writing after the Enlightenment period, beginning with Thomas Paine and ending with Richard Dawkins. It examines the underlying assumptions in these writings, and it demonstrates many of their flaws. And so for those who are interested in apologetics as well, we also sort of look at some of the arguments they make, uh, which really kind of leads into a discussion of various apologetics arguments. Um, so it's sort of a kind of like a history of philosophy, uh, and also uh, kind of an introduction to apologetics as well. So the, the chapter I'm reading here, as I said, focuses on uh, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche's attacks on Christianity in his book, The Antichrist, uh, as well as some of his other works to kind of give you more of a fully orbed look at kind of what he thought. And if you're intrigued by this reading, I would encourage you to please get a hold of the book. And um, if you are listening to this uh, after the Kindle promotion's done and you can't afford the book, or if you want a free digital copy that's easier to distribute, you can email me at cody at cantusfirmus.com. That's cody at cantus-firmus.com. Without further ado, here's the reading. Chapter 2. Friedrich Nietzsche, The Antichrist. Friedrich Nietzsche was a late 19th century German philologist and philosopher. He was known for writing in a style that was caustic, yet not always clear, so his views on the various subjects on which he wrote are often matters of intense scholarly debate, apart from his rants about musicians he used to like before they became mainstream. Footnote here. This is actually true. Note the numerous references in his work to the composer Richard Wagner. This, on top of his, and I'm paraphrasing here, claim that Christianity is lame, but Buddhism is kind of cool, I guess, has made him the appropriate patron philosopher of disaffected 16-year-olds everywhere. This is not to say, however, that more mature thinkers haven't been influenced by him. Nietzsche had a major influence on later postmodern thinkers such as Foucault and Derrida, and was well received by some of his contemporaries as well, including Sigmund Freud and H.L. Mencken. Nietzsche found success early, becoming the youngest to hold the chair in classical philology at the University of Basel at the tender age of 24. However, he also met decline early, suffering a mental breakdown at the age of 44 that he would never recover from. The criticism of Christianity was not uncommon for him. His most sustained attack on the faith was in his 1888 work, The Antichrist. Before discussing this book explicitly, it might help us to explore the controlling concepts which provide its backdrop. The Death of God This idea is stated most memorably, and frankly it's a beautiful bit of writing, in the parable of the madman in Nietzsche's book The Gay Science. In it, a madman goes through the streets proclaiming the death of God. Where is God gone, he called out. I mean to tell you. We have killed him, you and I. We are all his murderers. But how have we done it? How are we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the whole horizon? What did we do when we loosened this earth from its sun? Whither does it now move? 
Whither do we move? Away from all suns? Do we not dash on unceasingly? Backwards, sideways, forwards, in all directions? Is there still an above and below? Do we not stray as through infinite nothingness? Does not empty space breathe upon us? Has it not become colder? Does not night come on continually, darker and darker? Shall we not have to light lanterns in the morning? Do we not hear the noise of the gravediggers who are burying God? Do we not smell the divine putrefaction? For even gods putrefy. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we console ourselves, the most murderers of all murderers? The holiest and the mightiest that the world has hitherto possessed has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe the blood from us? With what water could we clean ourselves? What festivals, what sacred games shall we have to devise? Is not the magnitude of this deed too great for us? Shall we not ourselves have to become gods merely to seem worthy of it? There never was a greater event, and on account of it, all who are born after us belong to a higher history than any history before this. Here Nietzsche prods the academy of his time for paying lip service to the Christian faith, even though it had no remaining significance to it. From Nietzsche's perspective, he was the only man bold enough to perform the autopsy while his contemporaries were still trying to prop up the decaying deity in the corner of the room, a la the 1989 comedy film Weekend at Bernie's, which made him appear mad to them. He was not only willing to say plainly what so many others were only subconsciously aware of, he also was brave enough to accept the consequences of living in such a reality. The consequence of modern man's casting aside of the idea of God is that he has also necessarily undercut the foundation for ultimate meaning and morality. Nietzsche saw man's dilemma clearly. He must either step in and take the place which God had formerly served, or else succumb to nihilism. In place of Christian morality, Nietzsche proposed a different standard for human action, the will to power. The will to power. In discussing how the will to power differed from more traditional understandings of morality, Nietzsche muses, What is good? Whatever augments the feeling of power, the will to power, power itself in man. What is evil? Whatever springs from weakness. What is happiness? The feeling that power increases, that resistance is overcome. Not contentment, but more power. Not peace at any price, but war. Not virtue, but efficiency. Virtue in the Renaissance sense, vertu, virtue free of moral acid. Nietzsche did not explicitly define what the will to power was, therefore its precise meaning has been hotly contested. While the Nazi party, who looked to Nietzsche as an intellectual forebear, tended to identify with a strongly authoritarian and violent understanding of the will to power, later interpreters, sanitizers, have defined it in more friendly terms, as a mere self-overcoming and self-perfection, making Nietzsche into a mustachioed self-help guru. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle. The will to power might be thought of as a kind of mastery of one's environment which may or may not entail its violent subjugation. The key to the will to power for Nietzsche seems to have been fierce independence and the refusal to fall prey to the slave mentality. Like Thomas Paine, Nietzsche felt that Jesus' followers corrupted his message, a message which, when reconstructed by the German philosopher, mirrored his own, so that Jesus has reached us only in a greatly distorted form. Nietzsche seemed to take one saying of Jesus as definitively Christian, and uses it as the key to understanding his entire ethic. The kingdom of heaven is within you. If the kingdom of heaven is within each of us, Nietzsche reasoned, it refers to living life to the fullest now with no anticipation of a future age. Thus, the Nietzschean Christ was a secular man. 
He was not interested in making war on the physical world, and this is particularly true of the state of the whole bourgeoisie social order of labor of war, etc. Christ may have been uninterested in violence and retribution, but this wasn't because he was weak. It was instead because he was so in control of himself and his emotions that he could not let the actions of others affect him. Christ's death and willingness to forgive simply demonstrated his freedom from and superiority to every feeling of resentment, that is, the resentment of a weak man toward those whom he blames for his undesirable circumstances. An important difference between Nietzsche and Paine is that Paine despised Christianity for its particularity, its claim that God communicated through and to specific individuals, whereas Nietzsche despised it for its universality, its leveling of all human beings into equals. This quote, democratic principle of Christianity, thought Nietzsche, undermined the striving of superior men to reach their noble place in the human hierarchy. These are perhaps the most important underlying ideas in the Antichrist. Having laid that groundwork, we will now turn to the work itself. The Undermining of Aristocratic Values H. L. Mencken, the translator of the edition of the Antichrist from which I have been quoting, summarizes Nietzsche's position on this topic rather briskly in his introduction. What he feared most was the pollution and crippling of the superior minority by intellectual disease from below. Of all the religions ever devised by the great practical jokers of the race, Christianity is the one that offers most for the least money, so to speak, to the inferior man. It starts out by denying his inferiority in plain terms. All men are equal in the sight of God. If Mencken's summary of Nietzsche's view on Christianity sounds belligerent at first hearing, it's tame in comparison to Nietzsche's. The weak and the botched shall perish, first principle of our charity, and one should help them to it. What is more harmful than any vice? Practical sympathy for the botched and the weak, Christianity. Pity thwarts the whole law of evolution, which is the law of natural selection. It preserves whatever is ripe for destruction. It fights on the side of those disinherited and condemned by life. By maintaining life in so many of the botched of all kinds, it gives life itself a gloomy and dubious aspect. In contrast to his commentary on the Christian religion in its texts, Nietzsche is effusive about the Hindu code of Manu, which he says, "...differs fundamentally from every kind of Bible, by means of it the nobles, the philosophers, and the warriors keep the whip hand over the majority." What is truly great about Manu, in Nietzsche's eyes, is its ability to recognize that it is nature that sets off in one class those who are chiefly intellectual, in another those who are marked by muscular strength and temperament, and in a third those who are distinguished in neither one way or the other, but show only mediocrity. The last named represents the great majority, and the first two the select. The separation of the three types is necessary to the maintenance of society and to the evolution of higher types, and the highest types, the inequality of rights, is essential to the existence of any rights at all. This is a code of religious legislation whose object it was to convert the conditions which cause life to flourish into an eternal social organization. Christianity found its mission in putting an end to such an organization because life flourished under it. Nietzsche did not see democracy as a secular value, but a Christian one. Hinduism, with its focus on secular order, props up the caste system because it sees it as necessary to life and for human nobility. Nietzsche saw this as consistent with the law of natural selection in which the strong thrive. In contrast, Christianity makes war on class distinctions to hold up more transcendent values, such as the equality of human beings made in the image of God in the same measure. Therefore, Nietzsche saves his greatest invective for it. Whom do I hate most heartily among the rabbles of today? 
the rabble of socialists, the apostles to the Shandala, who undermine the working man's instincts, his pleasure, his feeling of contentment with his petty existence, who make him envious and teach him revenge. Wrong never lies in unequal rights, it lies in the assertion of equal rights. What is bad? But I have already answered. All that proceeds from weakness, from envy, from revenge. The anarchist and the Christian have the same ancestry. Whereas Marx thought Christianity propped up class distinctions and therefore enjoined atheism, Nietzsche felt that it undid them and should be rejected for this reason, arguing, What does Christianity deny? To be a soldier, to be a judge, to be a patriot, to defend oneself, to be careful of one's honor, to desire one's own advantage, to be proud. Such incoherence merely demonstrates the tendency of Christianity's critics to blame the Christian faith for any feature they dislike in Western culture. If Nietzsche is to be believed, Christ the man had no interest in challenging secular values which operated upon the principles of the will to power, but Christianity, following in the steps of the Apostle Paul, who, despite being offered the right hand of fellowship by Jesus' first disciples, is generally blamed for inventing anything which scoffers dislike about Christianity, subverted them. This was Paul's revelation at Damascus. He grasped the fact that he needed the belief in immortality in order to rob the world of its value that the concept of hell would master Rome, that the notion of a beyond is the death of life. Nihilist and Christian, they rhyme in German, and they do more than rhyme. Paul's invention, his device for establishing priestly tyranny and organizing the mob, the belief in the immortality of the soul, that is to say, the doctrine of judgment. The irony of Nietzsche's claim that a belief in the afterlife tyrannizes the nobility of man and undermines the heroic is that the Christian religion, when its doctrines and holy books are not under the control of a select few who can twist it to make it serve them, has undermined authoritarianism precisely because of its doctrine of resurrection. The tyrant's only weapon is his threat of violence, his power to kill. Since Christians believe that God will raise them up to everlasting life, this threat is insignificant to them, and therefore the tyrant is disarmed. This makes Christianity subversive, which is why tyrants almost always oppress it. It is only when a priestly class is believed by others to have the power of eternal damnation that an ostensibly Christian religion's influence turns to tyranny. This is why Martin Luther, when he had wrested the Bible from the magisterium, could boldly say to his accusers, Here I stand, I can do no other. The danger which Nietzsche thinks he sees in Christianity, that it will view the world as wicked or worse yet insignificant, is in fact a product of the ancient Gnostic heresy, opposed by the Church, which claimed that the immaterial realm is all that matters. That Gnosticism has sometimes influenced Christianity is unfortunately and undeniably true, but such gloomy doctrines cannot be found in the New Testament. Friedrich has simply missed the point. For Nietzsche, Christianity undermined aristocratic values by foisting upon the world a morality of resentment, of the ennobling of a weak and suffering people who identify with their weak and suffering God. Though Nietzsche may have disbelieved in all gods, he rather liked this idea of God in the image of superior men, and contrasted it with what he saw as the more universalistic and pious God of the New Testament. The truth is that there is no other alternative for gods. Either they are the will to power, in which case they are national gods, or incapacity for power, in which case they have to be good. When everything necessary to ascending life when all that is strong, courageous, masterful, and proud has been eliminated from the concept of a god, when he has sunk step by step to the level of a staff for the weary, a sheet anchor for the drowning, when he becomes the poor man's god, the sinner's god, the invalid's god par excellence, and the attribute of savior or redeemer remains as the one essential attribute of divinity. 
Just what is the significance of such a metamorphosis? The Christian concept of a god, the god as the patron of the sick, the god as a spinner of cobwebs, the god as a spirit, is one of the most corrupt concepts that has ever been set up in the world. It probably touches low watermark in the ebbing evolution of the god type. How did such a sad sack as the Christian god come about, according to Nietzsche? Such a decay results from what Nietzsche calls resentiment and the slave mentality. Christianity as slave morality. The poisonous doctrine equal rights for all has been propagated as a Christian principle. Out of the secret nooks and crannies of bad instinct, Christianity has waged a deadly war upon all feelings of reverence and distance between man and man, which is to say, upon the first prerequisite to every step upward, to every development of civilization out of the resentment of the masses, it has forged its chief weapons against us, against everything noble, joyous, and high-spirited on earth, against our happiness on earth. Nietzsche saw in early Judaism an entirely different deity than that found in Christianity, whereas the early Israelites were a warlike people who rose from subjugation to conquer their environment, and their god a reflection of this will to power. The early Christians were Jews who had been subdued by foreigners who did not know or respect their god. Christianity, therefore, was the product of the resentiment of a subjugated class toward their subjugators. Instead of fighting to destroy their enemies, which they were too weak to do, Christians turned the other cheek and pretended that it was a great sacrifice on their part to not fight back. At the same time, according to Nietzsche, they attempted to create a sense of shame in the superior class simply for being superior. Christianity was, for Nietzsche, a force which undermined what made man great, his will to power. The first step in formulating a religion based on resentiment is, according to Nietzsche, as follows. When the oppressed, downtrodden, and overpowered say to themselves with a vindictive guile of weakness, let us be otherwise than evil, namely, good. And good is everyone who does not oppress, who hurts no one, who does not attack, who does not pay back, who hands over revenge to God, who holds himself as we do in hiding who goes out of the way of evil and demands, in short, little from life. Like ourselves the patient, the meek, the just. Yet all this, in its cold and unprejudiced interpretation, means nothing more than, once for all, the weak are weak. It is good to do nothing for which we are not strong enough. Having concluded that they were superior for being weak, the Christians, with their so-called slave morality, then turned directly upon the aristocratic class and destroyed it by infecting it with their gospel of inferiority. The early disciples asked themselves, Who put Jesus to death? Who was his natural enemy? And answered, Dominant Judaism, its ruling class. From that moment, Nietzsche informs us, One found oneself in revolt against the established order and began to understand Jesus as in revolt against the established order. As a result of Christianity's later overcoming of the Roman Empire, The majority became master. Democracy, with its Christian instincts, triumphed. Again, I remind you of Paul's priceless saying, And God hath chosen the weak things of the world, the foolish things of the world, the base things of the world, and things which are despised. This was the formula. In this sign the decadence triumphed. God on the cross was man always to miss the frightful inner significance of this symbol. Everything that suffers, everything that hangs on the cross is divine. We all hang on the cross, consequently we are divine. Christianity was thus a victory. A nobler attitude of mind was destroyed by it. Christianity remains to this day the greatest misfortune of humanity.
In a tone as presumptuous as his mustache, Nietzsche pontificated about how Christianity, with its belief in universal equality, leveled humanity by destroying the partition between superior and inferior men. Let us not underestimate the fatal influence that Christianity has had, even upon politics. Nowadays, no one has courage any more for special rights, for the right of dominion, for feelings of honorable pride in himself and his equals, for the pathos of distance. Our politics is sick with this lack of courage. The aristocratic attitude of mind has been undermined by the lie of the equality of souls. Wrong never lies in unequal rights. It lies in the assertion of equal rights. Having dismantled not only Christianity, but every moral constraint which is based upon it that modern man takes for granted, all that is left is the will to power. All that is left, as Nietzsche wrote in the Genealogy of Morals, is the autonomous, supermoral individual. The Birth of Tragedy Though it is difficult to argue with Nietzsche's data regarding Christian theology and teaching, Christianity does in fact enjoin loving one's neighbor and turning the other cheek, his interpretation of that data will get less than unanimous agreement. This is where starting presuppositions are paramount. Is Christianity a religion of weaklings because it teaches the equal value of all human beings and demands love of neighbor, including one's enemies? Or, indeed, should we view equality, love, and self-sacrifice to be values? The idea that a god who sides with the oppressed is a god who undermines human flourishing will only be persuasive to social Darwinists who view themselves as being in a superior class, as Nietzsche's influence on this type of man has sadly borne out. More chilling is the conclusion that if Nietzsche was right about the death of God, he was also right about the will to power being the only remaining value. Nietzsche had inherited the premise that there were no gods but men, and having exegeted such a statement's true meaning, he passed it on to later generations, heaping tragedy upon tragedy. But Nietzsche's apologists have pointed out, ad infinitum, that he was not a German nationalist nor an anti-Semite, so he therefore could not be blamed for Hitler's philosophy. It was Nietzsche's emphasis on the will to power and on ethics as a human creation to facilitate said will which gave form to Hitler's previously unactuated bigotry. Though Hitler did not agree with Nietzsche about the German or Jewish people, he did agree with him on perhaps much more fundamental issues, and was vocal about the philosopher's influence on his own perspectives. Nietzsche, for all of his flaws, had a clear grasp of what mankind's options are. Commitment to transcendent relational ethics, or else commitment to personal sovereignty which has no use for external imperatives. Though it must be stated emphatically that moral relativism does not require violence from its opponents, it also doesn't preclude it. Nietzsche's philosophy should be very attractive to organisms shaped primarily by natural selection and selfish interest. In contrast, a philosophy centered around the worship of a crucified god should garner nothing but contempt. That most atheists even today are shaped by the ethic of the crucified god would be viewed as a shameful inconsistency on their part by Nietzsche. Thanks for listening. I hope that the reading was interesting for you guys. If you're uh, wanting to, uh, I guess I'd get a hold of the book, you can certainly do it by searching Post Enlightened on Amazon or by going to cantusfirmus.com. That's cantus-firmus.com uh, and uh, following links there. I also thank again Patreon supporters Kelly Smith and Peter Mangle. Uh, if you're interested in getting access to additional content, uh, free ebooks, special articles related to book projects that I'm working on, uh, and it's also uh, an exclusive uh, Patreon podcast. Um, you can find out about that by visiting campusfarmist.com and uh, clicking the link to Patreon. Thanks.